we're talking about the initial response of God to Job. And we've talked about the creation itself. And then we got into the difficult truth that evil has a place in creation. It it has a limited place, a finite place. Where it can go is boxed in by by God's permissive decree, what he allows. And yet, evil, even with its limits, has a place. It has a strange place. Uh, we have to say wonderful place in God's order, which seems weird. And so then the question naturally arises from that, will it always be this way? Do we have to get okay with the presence of evil forever? And that's what the next section is about. Karen, can you read, we're in uh, 38... Can you read starting in verse 12, 12 through 15? Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place, that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it? It is changed like clay under the seal and its features stand out like a garment. From the wicked their light is withheld and their uplifted arm is broken. Now we have a, a change in the image God is a commander of armies. He's a general. And the, the dawn is personified. It's a creature that is awaiting orders from its commander. And it's this, uh, uh, Ash calls it a delightful image, as if God shakes sleepy dawn in its bed gets it up, and tells it that it is time to get the world up again. And so in verse 13, you have this picture then of dawn doing just that, of, of dawn, uh, the, the image Ash uses is sometimes when you lift up the tablecloth and just kind of shake it to get the crumbs and the dust off of it, it's, it's holding the skirts by, of the earth by its edges, and it's shaking off the wicked, um, because it's time for light rather than darkness. There will come a time when God's purposes for evil in the world will be done forever. And, and evil will not have a place in this world one day longer than God has purposed for it. And so while it seems like God is the one slumbering, allowing this evil to take place, The image that God himself gives is that the dawn, the day of this light, is the one slumbering because he has a purpose for it. And the moment that he goes and wakes up the dawn from its bed and tells it to get to work, it will shake the skirts, the edges of the earth, and shake the wicked out of it. One of the things that happens in our Isaiah text this morning is that God, his people are in exile. They're in a time where it's hard to believe God's promises because their circumstances are so bad. And God uh, has done this before where he's given people a sign in the midst of something really, really bad. And he said, whenever you look to the sign, remember the promise. 
that no matter what the circumstances are around you, the sign is the promise that I will keep and can, uh, can give you hope and confidence when it's difficult. What's the first example of that? Genesis 9, the rainbow. Uh, which, by the way, I, I, it, there wasn't a place for it in the sermon because this isn't a sermon on Genesis 9. But Sunday school, I can talk about whatever I want. The, 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 has anyone, have you ever heard taught well? I had not heard taught well for a long time. Genesis 9 and the, the rainbow and what's happening in the Hebrew imagery there. But have you heard that taught well that the flood is God at war with man? That's what God's doing. The Lord comes against the earth in destruction and would wipe them out entirely, except he, by his grace, chooses to spare Noah and Noah's family. And so God is the warrior with his bow at war with man. What is a rainbow? Why is that the sign? It's God hanging up his bow. He will not be at war with man anymore. He is literally setting his weapon of war up and making the weapon itself a symbol and a sign of God's peace with man. Thus, the death and resurrection of Christ. (laughs) This, This symbol, it's more than a symbol, right? But it is also a symbol. This symbol, the cross of death and of curse, this grave, this symbol of death, and of curse become for us what? What should happen every time we remember the resurrection? (laughs) Confidence in God's promises. That that hope is rekindled by the sign. And so what's happening here in Job is in that vein, every time we see the sunrise, every single time we see a sunrise, We could, if we wanted to, and be properly theological, we could remember that God has promised a day when he will wake the sun from its slumber, it will grab the earth by its corners and shake the evil off of the earth forever. That our days are as they are because God has a good and wise purpose for it, but it will not always be this way. Evil will not always have a place in this world. And so every sunrise we see is the opportunity for us to remember. It's evidence to us in in poetic form that God has made a promise that it will not always be this way. The darkness will not last forever. That's what the sunrise says to us. The darkness will not last forever. And so God sets before Job. I'm very much following uh, Ash's outline this morning, by the way. So sometimes I'm quoting from him just in passing, like here. Don't accuse me of, or accuse me of plagiarism all you want, but I'm admitting to it. God has set before Job a deep and penetrating portrait of the fundamental structure of the universe, a cosmos that is deeply and ultimately good, a cosmos in which there is a necessary place for evil, and yet in whose structure the final destruction of evil is foreshadowed. That's... That would be really tough if God hadn't spoken directly to it, wouldn't it? <laughs> I mean, that's why the answer to dealing with evil, the answer to dealing with the fall 
and the curse and the difficulty of our lives is to move closer to God, not further away from him. It is to draw near to God and to draw near to God in his word because he has actually said all of the things that we need to believe, to have faith, to know what is going to happen. They're all in his word. That's why faith comes by hearing. And that's why uh, the New Testament uh, rhetorically wonders, how can they know if no one has told them? You, have, you, you can't intuit that evil will be done away with forever. You can't intuit that the darkness will eventually give way to light. But God has told us and God has given us signs and symbols that we can use as reminders. And, and the point I'll make in the sermon, sorry, voice is struggling. The point I'll make in the sermon is that weekly worship is one of those signs and reminders. Sabbath worship is one of them. We, we, go, we go out there and we live in the midst of circumstances that by themselves make us doubt the promises of God. We go out there and it seems like evil is not going away. We go out there and it seems like we will not inherit this eternal kingdom of the imagery of Isaiah. Of, of, it's similar in Revelation of jewel-lined streets and, and mansions. <laughs> I don't know about you, but that's not how this week made me feel. Um, and so God gives us these visible signs. We're pretty good at recognizing the rainbow when we see it. And uh, we enjoyed that quite a bit when we were in Hawaii, which seems to have a rainbow every 35 feet and every eight minutes. And, and you would just see it. And it is, it's at this point, it's just an ingrained reminder. God loves his people. God will not go to war with us again. Well, we can have the same type of realization every sunrise and every Lord's Day. That God will one day uh, cast evil, the darkness metaphorically, from the world. And that God is constantly drawing us into himself, calling us into himself. When the whole week makes us feel like, and I, this, isn't, this isn't every week, this is hyperbole, and this isn't every moment of every week. It's, it's not as if this is the only connection with God you have is on a Sunday morning. But this is the one that he promises in the midst of his people. This is the one that's the guarantee, if you'll have it, um, is that God has not abandoned us. God has not forgotten us. God is not so displeased with our sin this week that he casts us out. God doesn't look at us and see failures that he's put up with enough and no more. He draws us back in. He gives us himself, again, week after week after week. Um, this is what the Catholics get so wrong about worship, and I think it's much to their spiritual detriment, which is that worship is not our showing up week after week to re-sacrifice Christ, to make a new sacrifice for the crummy week we just had, to come in confession again so that God will still have something to do with us. We are not the primary actors in worship. God is. <laughs> we show up and God speaks promises to us. God calls us to worship. God sends his spirit to dwell with us. God speaks to us through the preaching of the word. He moves in our spirits through the singing. He hears our prayers. He feeds us at the table of his son. He marks our children and those who believe in baptism. God speaks, God speaks, God speaks. 
Otherwise, and this is, this is just more of a personal question, how does worship become anything other than just one more thing you have to do? How do you keep worship from just being, man, I had a week, and now I have one more obligation. I had a week, and now I have one more box I have to check. God, wants one, God didn't ask enough of me this week, and now he demands this too? No, it's quite the opposite. Is that God says, come, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come, you who do not have money. You who labor for that which does not fill you up, come. Uh, It's pretty amazing stuff. And so we have this opportunity to see and to be reminded, even in the midst of our circumstances, living in this world that is filled with darkness, we have these little tokens, touch points that we can see. And, And this is, just for the record, this is my beef with the church calendar. It's not that I get mad at people, well, in my flesh, I do, but that's my sin. So let me tell you what my position should be. It's not that I want to bring Easter Sunday or Christmas down. It's that I want to bring the other 51 Sundays up. That, that experience that the church provides for people on Easter, the joy of he is risen, the, the glory of his grace, the, even the American church is pretty great at doing Easter. I want us to do all the Sundays that way. It's the same resurrection. It's the same grace. It's the same freedom. It's, it's available to us every Sunday, not just one. And, and people show up to worship on Easter much more willing, because they know they're supposed to, to lay aside their struggle and their trials and their toils and their circumstances and to say, well, it's Easter. You know, God deserves worship on Easter. Right? And the better mentality would be, no, 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 that's what every Sunday is. And it's not lay aside, pretend they don't exist. It's lay aside at the foot of the cross. It's, it's taking a yoke off of ourselves and putting the yoke on Christ. And then we're able to worship. And that's how, Isaiah is going to say over and over again in the passage, That's how you can have peace and joy, even when you are in exile in Babylon. It's not playing pretend. It it is transformational change that's wrought by the Spirit of God. You can have peace and joy, even when you're in exile in Babylon. How? Because you can take off spiritually, emotionally, that yoke, and you can put it on one who carries the burden for you. And he gives his his burden, which is light. It doesn't feel like to us. We actually like our burdens. We, 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 we don't, but we're afraid to give them up. How about that? I won't say like. We wrestle to keep them. <laughs> Christ, is, Christ is asking for our burden and offering us a, a, a simpler, lighter burden. And, and we get very possessive of our burdens, <laughs> very resistant to handing them over. Uh, and, and God gives us all these signs day after day, week after week. Rainbow after rainbow to remember that his promises are good. And so death will be put away. Darkness will be gone forever. How can we be sure of that? So how can we know? How can we know that evil is a part of God's creation and under God's control? Because the alternative that most religions have and that some 
forms of Christianity seem to have, is that evil is this independent and autonomous power that threatens God's good purposes, that God actually has to, has to engage in battle with evil in a way where the outcome is, is in doubt or in question, at least. And how do we know that that's not the case? And that's where God goes next. Uh, Matt, can you read 16 through 18? Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare if you know all this. This is a great example of what I meant last week or the week before. Whenever I said that multiple things are true at the same time. And, and one way of reading these questions is to just kind of blow through them and say, God is unfolding a long litany of questions that Job has no answer for, that the answer is no, that God is just overwhelming Job to put him in his place. And it is true that God has a long litany of questions that do have the effect of overwhelming Job and putting him in his place. But they're not arbitrary questions. They're very important. And there's a logical sequence to them. And so this one is an answer to the question of how do I know that evil will be destroyed? How do I know that evil is not independently sovereign of God? And God says, I've been to a place that you haven't been. You ever been to the realm of the dead? Is, is that a place, Job, with which you are familiar? That language, springs of the sea, recesses of the deep, gates of death. Declare if you know all this. Job, what do you really know about evil? You, you, you have experienced pain, no doubt. But what do you know about that place? No man had ever been there and returned to tell about it. (laughs) No man had ever been to the place of death and come out to write a book about it and inform us about the place of death. We obviously know he is risen. That did happen. God himself had to do it. Job could not have done it. And so Job could not know. How is, how is, um, how is the, the universe, the creation, described in the beginning? Verse 1, in the beginning, there was God. Okay. What's verse 2 of Genesis chapter 1? Yeah, the darkness was over the face of the deep. And God says to Job, what do you know about darkness? You think you know. You have experienced a shadow of a shadow of a mirror of a reflection of a painting of darkness. And, and we see how dark that can be based on what Job experienced. If we're turning to one another, we don't want to compare experiences of darkness because pain is pain. But that's not what's happening here. Job has turned to God and claimed to know a whole lot about darkness. And God says, I don't know if you remember, but, but I was there. Um, Ash says, the Lord essentially asks Job, have you been down there? If you have, you will have seen the gates of death. You will have visited the entrance to Sheol itself. The Lord is asking Job if he's he's seen the underworld. And, And again, Job, speaking as a man, in a sense, thinks that he has. 
That, that, that in his suffering, he talked this way in his laments, that in his suffering, he is right there knocking on the door of Sheol. He will be dead soon. He is down in the pit. He cannot be saved. He, he thinks he, he understands the darkness. And he, he has a sense of the darkness. That's why it cries out to him, how long, O oh Lord, how can this be? But he does not have the comprehensive and universal understanding of death that he needs in order to pass judgment on how God's running his universe. That's what he lacks. He's making a decision. Teenagers are particularly good at this. I have, I have in our house, this happens sometimes. And sometimes we struggle to grow out of it as we grow up. Where you, you make a decision based on a tiny sliver of evidence, and yet you act like you're absolutely certain. You, you, you lack really key information, and yet you are absolutely certain about the way things are. That's what Job's done. Job has a little bit of evidence, his own suffering in the face of his own righteousness, both of which are true. Job is righteous and Job is really suffering. It's not to say that Job's uh, wrong about that, but, but Job has this much of the evidence. And God has the whole picture because he was there when the darkness hovered over the deep. He made this universe according to the blueprints of his plans and everything is exactly as he planned it. And then Job turns to the builder and says, that's not how this is supposed to work. It's, it's just a very strange accusation. Job is operating with limited facts here. The place of the dead is in scripture, the deepest, darkest, worst extremity in all creation. It is, uh, it is outside of our knowledge, and therefore it is definitely outside of our control. We, we can hardly speak to it. But what the Lord says here, by implication of asking these rhetorical questions, it's not outside of the Lord's knowledge, and it's not outside of his control. Even death, even death is not outside of his knowledge and his control the New Testament. Where death is your sting? Where is your victory? And we look at deaths of those that we love. We ponder our own coming death, and it sure feels like the victory of death to us. And we say to God, this can't be right. And God says, I know death better than you do, and I control death. It's not outside of me. It's not independent of me. It's not free of my sovereignty. It is absolutely within my control. And then what we have that Job didn't have is Resurrection Sunday. <laughs> we, we have the historical proof that death is not outside of his control. They took him off the cross, dead. They put him in the grave, dead. And they come back three days later and say, where is he? He is not here. We have the historical proof that one, God himself, who becomes man for us, goes into that place of death and returns and returns victorious. What more would we need? This is an intellectual question, not an emotional one, obviously. What more would we need to believe that God is sovereign over death? He, he, he conquered death. 
He, he, from the foundations of the earth, had this plan to send his son to take on human flesh, to be crucified for us and for our salvation. And, and the, the even, that's why the creed has the language it has. We can quibble with it however we want, but that's why the creed has the language it has of he descended into hell. He went down into the place where no man can go and win. And he went down there and he won. And then we face death, emotionally trying to be sure. But should it be faith-shaking? The one who controls death, the one who knows the darkness and has been down to the darkness and conquered it, uh, intellectually, it should not be so because light and darkness are controlled by God. That's the next section. Renee, can you read 19 to 21? Where is the way to the dwelling of light, and where is the place of darkness, that you may take it to its territory, and that you may discern the paths to its home? You know, for you were born then, and the number of your days is great. Now we're going to use, we're going to change uh, analogies again. We're, we're going to use similar language, but we're changing the picture a little bit. Another pair of Extremes. We have life and we have death. And now we're going to another one, which is light and darkness. And, and the, the Bible talks this way. It's poetry. Uh, it, it's, not, um, it's not an indication that anybody thought the earth was flat. It's, it, it's, it's poetry that there's a place over the horizon that is the place where light lives. And every day it comes up to light the earth. And there is a place over the opposite horizon where darkness lives. And, and every day it comes up. Um, and so God asks Job if he's ever been there. And, and not just if he's ever been there, but look at verse 20. If he's ever been there so that he could conduct each one to its home. Not just, Job, do you know where these places are and can you get there? But when you get there, can you tell them what to do? When you go to the light in its bed and tell it it's time to rise up, does it listen to you? Do you know where to tell it to go? Uh, no, God alone is sovereign over light and darkness. And again, the, the, the combination of these metaphors, these illustrations, is to try and get in Job's mind and in ours that, that there's not one maverick molecule, that there's not one space that exists in which God is not sovereign. And, and that's what really Job's been wrestling with, right? This is not the way the world is supposed to work, God. It seems like some things are getting away from you, God. Things are not working how they're supposed to. And, and, and God's, Job, Job, that the place that you're thinking, I've been there. And when I go there, it tell, I tell it what to do. And that other place, I go there and I tell it what to Have you been there, Job? Does it listen to you? Can you find it? Can you? That's, that's what's happening here. God's governing of the world is consistent with the ordering of his creation. Um, therefore, the next five little vignettes, the next five passages, all call on Job to look 
upward to the skies and reflect on what the skies teach us about the wonderful counsel of God in his government of the world. Four of the five of these are about water. Um, but all of them are drawing us up. Again, God giving us signs, things that we can see every day to use to comprehend and to be comforted by the sovereignty of God, even in a world that feels so topsy-turvy, a world that is not working as we think it ought to work. The first one is snow and hail. Noah, can you read 22 through 24? Have you entered the storehouses of the snow, or have you seen the storehouses of the hail, which I have reserved for the time of trouble, for the day of battle and war? What is the way to the place where the light is distributed, or where the east wind is scattered upon the earth? Can you imagine that uh, that God has storehouses of precipitation, <laughs> and and he he looks over the earth and knows what is needed where, and he draws it out of his storehouses and he places it where it's needed. And we love to think about that in the positive of oh yeah, the Lord sends the rains and gives growth to the plant, but. That's really not the angle this one takes, is it? It's hail and it's snow and it's for time of trouble, for the day of battle and war. Hail was part of the plagues of Egypt. Hail is, is a, a symbol of uh, the, the wrath of God in Isaiah. We read that many chapters ago. Um, snow is is can be a weapon of war from God to us. Uh, the psalm psalmists talk about that. You've seen that with uh, I think Napoleon learned that lesson. Hitler learned that lesson. God can use snow as a weapon of war. And so these these storehouses that God has, even a precipitation, when we look up at the skies, yes, we think about giving the grass and the earth growth, and that's good. But it also, God can have storehouses of whatever he wants that he's using for his destructive purposes, where that is uh, what is for good. The light of verse 24 is probably lightning and the stormy wind of verse 24. It's destruction that is unleashed on the world from above. God has purposes in his destruction and his purposes are redemptive. That is uh, Romans 8.28, that all things work for good. It's for the good of those who love God and are called by God. What is the good? Glorification in Christ. Every single thing, the storehouse of hail that God is releasing somewhere, in addition to whatever other purposes he has for it, has an ultimate purpose of making some of his people more like Christ and more ready for the day of his coming. Because that is what God is doing. That is what the all things do. Um, and so he just asked Job. Job, uh, last time you were up there looking at the storehouses of, of hail and of snow, you, you understood what I was doing with those things, right? Job, what are, you, what are you talking about? You're making this accusation on such limited evidence. Job has never been there. He cannot speak to these issues. Uh, Daphne, can you read 25 to 27? 
who has cleft a channel for the torrents of rain and a way for the thunderbolt to bring rain on a land where no man is, on the desert in which there is no man, to satisfy the waste and desolate land and to make the ground sprout with grass? Will you keep reading uh, 28 to 30? Has the rain a father, or who has begotten the drops of dew? For those womb, for those womb did the ice come forth, and who has given birth to the frost of heaven? The waters become hard like stone, and the face of the deep is frozen. So he gives us first in 25 to 27 the positive effect of precipitation that we mentioned, that, that rain is God's water for life. He'll use that language in Isaiah as well, that, that God sends water and does what the farmer cannot do on his own. The only reason that we can water our plants is that God gives us water and creative engineering minds to figure out how to hold that water and use it when we need it. There are no plants that receive water apart from the Lord sending the rains. And so that is his life-giving water. And so what he calls us to in, in 28 through 30 is to think deeply, Ash says, about what we can learn from water. It's in these different forms. We think about, meditate on the different forms of precipitation and the ways that God uses them for life-giving and for destructive purposes. It's, it's yet another sign and image that we can look at and see. And with Job, look up to the sky and comprehend God has an order for his universe. And when I see things as I do every single day, that feel out of order to me. I need to remember that I've not been up to these storehouses of rain and of hail, that that, that they don't follow my command and bring life or destruction where it's appropriate. And so what we're supposed to do is to go the level beyond that to the one who created the water. Has the reign of father who's begotten the drops of dew? From whose womb did the ice come forth? Who has given birth to the frost of heaven? We're to think about the creator, this intimate relationship between God and all of these forms of precipitation that bring life and that bring death. And they are all his children doing his bidding. All of them. Ash says we are not at liberty to credit him with the times when we experience life-giving rain without also acknowledging that he is the one from whom death-dealing ice and frost come to us. He is the sovereign originator of them all. It's the hardest thing for the modern Christian church to seem to accept. <laughs> I had this on a phone call this week where, where somebody, um, there was a hard providence and somebody was speaking honestly about that providence, but then they caught themselves, but their, their correction was, I'm not saying that God had anything to do with that. <laughs> and of course I left them alone because I'm not a jerk. But in my head, well, I am a jerk, but in that moment, God was gracious. Um, in my head, I thought, well, then how could you ever think this is okay? How are you ever going to get okay with this hard providence? if you genuinely believe that God had nothing to do with it? How do you get there from here? No better would be to accept that all the rain that gives life and the rain that brings the flood are both from God, designed by God, and purposed by God. Just like we'll hear in Isaiah today, his word goes forth and accomplishes the purpose for which it was sent. It's true about everything God sends. 
Everything God sends accomplishes the purpose for which it was sent. That is a hard truth for us. But that's the hard truth of earlier in the chapter, that evil has a place in his world until he is done with it. Once we've accepted that, hard truth, once we've accepted that, it makes everything else easier. Not, not emotionally easier. It gives us something. <laughs> it, it, it gives us a reason for hope that's grounded in something other than optimistic feelings. That God knows what he's doing and that he's doing it on purpose. And his purpose, Scripture tells us, is our glorification. Questions about the rain and the waters, and then we'll look back up at the sky again here in a second. Just a comment as terrifying as the tornado God can sometimes be, the God who either doesn't care or can't do anything about the tornado. Yeah. It's worse. It's the piece of him as the cornerstone. The, the heart of pain can certainly ask, why God? And the heart of pain can certainly ask and should ask, how long, O Lord? But without the heart of faith, there's no exit from despair. The the, the arbitrariness overwhelms you. And that's really what got to Job. And then because Job knew he was righteous, that's why the, the self-righteousness and the anger starts to come out. Job, Job is most concerned that this isn't right with respect to Job. There may be people who deserve a world that is this way. I am not one of those people. And that's why Elihu is so mad. Elihu says, Job... You think your honor is the most important thing in this transaction? God's honor is the most important thing in this transaction. And submitting to God is the answer to the heart of pain. And God comes along and says, yep. And Elihu, even you don't know what I know. Even the prophets don't know what God knows. They haven't seen what God has seen. They have seen only what he has shown them. They're, they're, they're operating on more information than us until they tell us and then we're on the same page. But it, it is not even a comparison to God who in the same passage where he says, his word goes out and doesn't return to me void. The same passage of Isaiah where he says, come to me and listen to me and learn from me. In the very same passage, God says, I'm pretty far above you, and my ways are not your ways, and there's a limit. Those things are always true. All right, fourth passage. We're going to look up at the skies again, but we're not going to think about water anymore. Well, we're going to come back to it. Craig, can you read 31 through 33? Can you bind the chains of the Pleiades or loose the cords of the Orion? Can you lead forth the Mazaroth in their season, or can you guide the bear with its children? Do you know the ordinances of the heavens? Can you establish their rule on the earth? So first, we have two constellations that we're familiar with, the Pleiades and Orion. 
The poetry is tough here, but the best understanding based on the previous passages about rain is that God has them kind of in their in their in their uh, chains held in place, so to speak, until he releases them. And then they are free to uh, cross the sky Uh, and that they also operate within fixed patterns of where they can go. Everything even that these constellations do is at the permissive decree of God. They are his cre- uh, creation, and they go when and the way that he has told them to go. Then you have these other heavenly bodies, these, these or groups of bodies, the, the Maseroth, probably the planets. <laughs> this, this gets tricky because you're translating Hebrew into a concept that even once you translate it, we're still not going to know exactly what they meant by that. So we're using the context uh, quite a lot. Um, and, and the bear, probably uh, uh, further galaxies or constellations, stars and its children. We're talking about uh, the heavens. And, and verse 32 speaks of leading them forth in their season. They're doing their, um, they're doing their work mapping out the universe, setting the ends, the expanse of our known universe. They are in the place that God has placed them. The stars are often symbolic in scripture of the role of angels, of spiritual beings by uh, whom God governs his universe and what happens. And so verse 33 ends asking if Job has controlling knowledge of the ordinances of of the heavens. And so this is, this is like layered poetry upon layered poetry. But the idea is the stars the, 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 that are symbols themselves for angels, the way the world beyond us is governed. We understand how the earth is governed by weather in a lot of ways. And it's governed by sunrise and sunset in a lot of ways. Those were the concepts before. Now we're going up a tier. If you think about the heavens and the earth, we've talked about the governance of the earth. Now we're talking about the governance of the heavens, both, uh, both physically, stars and constellations, and both metaphorically, angelic beings, all of whom uh, uh, are uh, all, all of whom are under God's sovereignty and creations, tools, for lack of a better word, by which he governs his earth. Just as what happens on the earth, the water that comes down, the sunrise, has a creator, an originator, one who causes it to be for a specific purpose, so the unseen things in the heavenly realities have the same type of relationship from God. Um, And that probably is for our benefit as much as Job's because Job doesn't know about the meeting in the heavenly council in chapters one and two, but we do. And so we're the ones who should think, oh, that was under God's sovereign hand too. Satan's accusation, God's permissive uh, response to Satan. You can do this, but not that. You can go this far, but not that far. You can hurt him, but you can't kill him. The unseen realm is just as much under God's control and sovereign hand as is the seen realm. Does that make sense? In as much as we can understand Hebrew poetry. I'm, I'm, I'm much more confident 
in what that passage means than I am in how it's getting there linguistically. <laughs> the words are, are hard to piece together in that one. But in the flow of the argument, you can see how it would fit. Uh, Crystal, can you read 34 through 38? Can you lift up your voice to the clouds, then flood of water and they cover you? Can you send forth lightnings, then they may go and say to you, here we are. Who has put wisdom in the inward parts, or given understanding to the mind? Who can number the clouds by wisdom, or who can tilt the water skins of the heavens? When the dust runs into a mass, and the clouds stick fast together. So this is another one, probably even more so than the last one. The main meaning is quite clear. The specific meaning of some of these words and phrases are, are, are lost to history in terms of why this would have resonated with an ancient Near East audience the way that it did. In 34, Job is asked if he has the authority to call up to the clouds so that they send a much-needed flood of life-giving rainwater. In 35, he's asked the same thing, but in terms of having the authority to command bolts of lightning. This is a, this Ash says, this is a delightful picture. Bolts of lightning reporting for duty before Job, standing at attention and saying to him, here we are, where will you send us today? Doesn't happen with Job so much. Uh, The main point of all this is that no human being has the authority to command life-giving waters a blessing. No human being can command rain and prevent hail and snow. No human being can avoid suffering and ensure constant blessing. This is not within Job's power. It's not within our power. It is within God's power. That's the point of all of this. Job, in his disagreement with how things are, is acting as though someone better than God should have the authority to command these things. That is highly dishonoring of God. That's why Elihu said, you speak as the sinners speak. Not, you're apostatizing and turning away from the faith. Job, don't talk this way. The heart of pain is one thing. The heart of of self-righteousness is a sin. And so that's what's brought to light here. And that's what God is is dealing with. So in this first speech of God's, we've, we've got to, Ash says, banish from our thoughts. Let's come back to that. Any residual dualism. All right, well, that's a fancy way of saying what? (laughs) Uh, Evil is not a separate and independent autonomous power. Evil doesn't take God by surprise. Evil doesn't operate outside of God's permissive decree. I'm not saying it's not hard to accept this. I'm saying what the last speech of God has been all about. I'm saying in large part what the book of Job is all about. Because the, the picking up that sentence where I left off, and you should want it to be that way. The alternative is so much worse. And we'll one day banish it entirely. 
this idea of, <clears throat> so it's like the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he, whom he may devour. It's like, well, God's told him where he can go and who he can eat. Right? Mm-hmm. Satan came to me, Peter, and asked that you would be sifted like wheat. Oh, I mean, I, I get chills. Just, oh, God, let it not be so. Right? Um, yeah, I mean, I repeat that phrase a thousand times because it's the easiest way for my little brain. There is not one maverick molecule. You've got to get down to the molecular level. We talked about the heavens and the earth. We talked about the rains. We talked, we talked about the blessing and the destruction. Get down to the molecular level. There is not one molecule going where it ought not to go, according to God's decree. Hard. Lord, this is a hard teaching. Who can take it? Would you go too? Well, it's worse everywhere else. (laughs) This is better. Uh, Hard, hard to receive. So much better for every step after the receiving of it. (laughs) So much better when we're actually in the heart of pain. So much better when we're trying to have the heart of faith. So much better when we're trying to answer the question that was Job asked earlier. Why is it worth doing good at all? There's so many critical questions in Job that really don't have to do with suffering, that have to do with the meaning of life and purpose of life. And the answer that God gives to the meaning of suffering is the answer to all of those questions too, which is he is utterly and absolutely sovereign and everything he is doing will glorify him And the way he has chosen to be glorified is through the salvation of his people. It's everything gets better. So we're forced to consider this as Ash, the strange but wonderful possibility that evil is created to serve the purposes and glory of God and that in some mysterious way, even darkness is necessary to show forth the light of God's goodness. Derek Thomas says, God is systematically reducing Job to size, deflating all the excess pride inside him by removing from Job's mind every thought that makes God out to be small. God's, the, the reducing Job to size is God's effect. It's not his attitude. God's not trying to make Job feel small and pathetic. God is trying to remind Job of how big God is. And the effect of our seeing how big God is, is to make us feel appropriately small if our hearts are right, and shamefully small if we were self-righteous. Who did we think we were? But that's, that's not God trying to pile shame up on us. That's God simply showing us who he is. And the effect of that is we fall down. The effect of seeing the glory of angels is enough to make humans fall down. It happens all the time in Scripture. And the angels are always saying, stop! Stop that! (laughs) You think I'm too holy for you? (laughs) Um, That's the effect of what's happening here. So real quick, I just want to finish up this chapter reading a couple uh, Derek Thomas quotes. 
The mistake made by Job's three friends was that they reduced God to workable definitions. Job may have no answers to the problem of his suffering, but that is just the point. He is being molded into shape so that come what may, trust will be uppermost in his heart. There's a similarity here in Job with the book of Ecclesiastes. It's also all of wisdom literature has this theme. The book is a record of a search for the key of life. That's what Solomon was looking for, right? The the key, the secret to understanding life. It is an endeavor to give meaning to life, to see it as a whole. And what we learn in Ecclesiastes is there is no key to life under the sun. Life has lost the key to itself. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. If you want the key to life, you must go to the locksmith who made the lock. God holds the key to all the unknown. Ready for the twist? And he will not give it to you. Since then, you cannot have the key. You must trust the locksmith to open the doors. That's it. Like, that's what drove Solomon mad was was he could tell there's no key to this mystery of life under the sun. And then he goes up and he, he, he sees these glimpse moments in Ecclesiastes that the locksmith actually does have the key. And in his pride, he's furious that he won't give it to him. And he gives him to despair. And Job wants the key. And in his pride, he has demanded of God, you will give me the key. And now we're at the end of the of Job. God is speaking, and does God give him the key? No, you can't have it. And Scripture tells us elsewhere, if you had it, you wouldn't know what to do with it, and you'd use it wrong, and you'd misunderstand it. But you can't have it, because the point is not you getting the key. The point is you being all in on the locksmith. You being all in on the one who made the lock, and who has the key, and who governs the world wisely. Things may appear to be out of control at times, but they are not. God restricts the progress of evil. It may appear as though injustice rules, but this is false. God is in control. Questions? We got, God has more to say, so we have more to say. But that's, that's where all this is, is going. 